And I am so pleased to learn today with uh, Rav Asher Lepatin, who is the executive director of the JC, JCRC AJC of Detroit and the founding rabbi of Kehillat Eitz Chaim of Detroit. He's also the founding director of the Detroit Center for Civil Discourse, a Rhodes Scholar and a Truman Fellow with the Master's in Philosophy and Medieval Arabic Thought from Oxford University. Rabbi Lepatin has also done doctoral work at St. Anthony's College, Oxford, in Islamic fundamentalist, fundamentalist attitudes towards Jews and Israel. He has written chapters for over 20 books and numerous articles prior to moving with his wife, Rachel, and their four children to Detroit. He served as the president of Yeshiva at Chobavei Torah Rabbinical School, and before that served as the rabbi of Anshay Shalom B'nai Israel mm -hmm. Congregation in Chicago. Rabbi Lepat received ordination from Rav Aaron Soloveitchik and Yeshiva's Brisk in Chicago and from Yeshiva University. Rabbi Lepat is a permanent member of the Council on Foreign Relations and on the board of New Detroit. I have been a great uh, student of Rav Asher for many decades now, a follower of of him, a learner of his Torah, and appreciative of both his passion and his nuance and his sensitivity and, um, and his collaborative, inclusive approach um, and empowering others. I'm thrilled to learn with him and be in conversation with him today. And thank you all so much for joining. Okay, Rav Asher, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Rav Shmuley. What an honor to be here. And I have... Uh... The nice weather. Okay, good. We're good. Good, good. There's a little bit of an echo. Well, I'll keep talking. Uh, there we go. Beautiful. Uh, so, actually, one of the things that I, I'm both the rabbi of a small shul in Detroit, Kilat Etz Chaim. It's such a joy. And, uh, also the director of, um, as Rev Shmuley mentioned, um, the Jewish Community Relations Council, AJC, where a bridge to the, from the Jewish community to the broader community. So actually I was just at a board meeting of New Detroit uh, this morning, where it's really a coalition of whites, browns, blacks, everybody to fight racism. And uh, that's sort of what we do here. And my what I'd like to talk about today, the sources I'd like to share, they're really just um, five sources, um, will touch on, um, on this issue of Judaism connecting to the world around us. I was, um, and, and it's, very challenging, especially, you know, there's a lot of talk about anti-Semitism and, and it is on the rise and everything, but it's also a climate where Jews are accepted in marriage. And I, you know, I heard a statistic 72 outside of Orthodox circles and, and perhaps outside of New York circles, 72% of Jews marry non-Jews were accepted into all the country clubs, uh, I don't know, all of them. I, I did watch the episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm where Larry David tries to pretend he's a uh, Protestant, but, um, but thank you, Eddie. Um, 
But, um, but in general, the challenges in our society, we are so well accepted um, outside of the Jewish world that um, it's a real challenge for us. Um, it is always a challenge building bridges and coalitions as, as um, Uriel Tzedek knows, or Shmuley knows, all the different organizations associated with it. But um, it's also an interesting challenge of uh, when do we work just for ourselves? When do we say, I'm, I'm, you know, if I'm for everyone, I'm for no one. Rav Shmuley, this was so interesting when you didn't donate your kidney. I remember you struggled with this. Like, do I just say for everyone? Do I say for Jews? And um, so what I'd like to look at now is certain decisions that were made um, by some of the giants by uh, in our religion, um, and really not sure it was the right decision. They're they're listed in in uh, you know Tanakh, and and so maybe Tanakh, our Bible is is endorsing them, but it's not totally um, totally clear whether these are the right decisions. And maybe we can explore that also. I was I was just in. Um, you know, I go to shul every morning, and uh, and then Sunday afternoon I was in a church, and my previous psak was from Rav Aaron Soloveitchik that Rav Shmuley mentioned. I have to say that Rav Aaron Soloveitchik's two of his grandkids, one of them is Mayor Soloveitchik, very well known, and spoken a lot of uh, Republican conventions. Nahama Soloveitchik, his granddaughter, uh, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik's granddaughter, is the Chief Communication Director for the Nikki Haley campaign. So um, Rav Aaron Soloveitchik always said he was a Democrat. So just want to put that out there. But um, uh, Rav Aaron Paskin, for me, and Rav Aaron was very, um, you know, was a real, very much in favor of civil rights and for the equality of all people. But he had a ruling of not going into church. You don't have to go into the sanctuary of a church. You could go into like the ante room. Uh, and so this helped me out with my friends, Christian friends who got married. I could see them get married, but I couldn't go into the church. And even Ravon Soloveitchik's asking, you couldn't even go into a mosque. Um, now I work for the AJC, American Jewish Committee. And again, a lot of my job is going into mosques and going into churches and going into Hindu temples even. Um, and so I actually follow the psaac of Rabbi David Rosen, who's, uh, you know, Mickey Rosen of blessed memory. Uh, David's his brother, big uh, rabbinic family. Um, and he's a big Tamil Chacham. And he's really specializes in sock and religious uh, law regarding, can you go into a church? What can you do? Can you stand up? Can you bow your head? Can you this and that? So he's much more, I should say, lenient than Ravon Soloveitchik was as far as going into connecting with other religions uh, in that way. It's still jarring um, when uh, I um, go to... Um, and those of you who are maybe baby boomers will get this. Uh, when I go to a Hindu temple or a Hindu event, we do with Hindus Diwali and they're singing Krishna, Krishna. You know, and I remember from the uh, 70s and 80s where we would run the other direction if there was a Hare Krishna. And then Nebuch, uh, I deal with the there's Moonies, the, the Unification Church, and it's all there. So. I want to look at some sources that are very much um, kind of rejectionist and uh, where there is an opportunity of coming together 
with the surrounding religion a little bit, surrounding people, and it was rejected. And I want to, well, we'll go through them and then we'll love to have a discussion and people's feelings about them. Um, uh, three of them are Torah Shebikhtav or from Tanakh. Uh, and, you know, we're really free. It's not a halacha, halacha uh, thing. It's it's open to discussion. One of them is uh, Rabban Gamliel. It touches more on, uh, it's a little bit more on Torah Shabbat Pan, a little bit more on uh, halachic practice. And one of them is, uh, is just crazy. So that'll be fun, the last one. Um, but also, I'll say that my own uh one of the things I do is is uh, def- advocate for Israel, and we advocate for shared society in Israel. And uh, so I'm personally like a big advocate for shared society in America and in Israel and everywhere that people should live together. I'm for uh, immigration. We need more immigrants in this country to make this a better country. Let's come together. And in Israel also, Arabs and Jews and Palestinians, Israelis, so these kind of uh, um, the the setting for the, at least the first first three sources feels a lot like um, the early decades of Medinat Israel of Israel. Now, the state of Israel, thank God, is celebrating seventy five years this year. Uh, very exciting, and uh, it might feel like in a different place than it was in the fifties and sixties, but. Um, I think when we think about what did it feel like then, it was a little bit like the um, Shavei Bavel after, after the destruction of the first temple. Most, it seems, most of the Jews from Judea and Benjamin go into exile to Bavel, into Babylon. Um, and then uh, 70 years later, Cyrus the Great says, okay, you can return to the Holy Land, and you can rebuild your temple. And a very small group goes, a little bit like, again, if you think of Israel in the, uh, maybe even before Hakamata Medina, even before, maybe from the Balfour Declaration, let's say. And also, there are only um, 600,000 Jews living in Palestine in 1948. So a small, uh, you know, a a smattering of the Jews in, in the world um, so it's sort of a little bit kind of like that, like Cyrus says you can return, the British Empire says you can return to Palestine, um, and how do we work out things with the people that are in the land? So just like um, it's not true that a uh, people without a land needs a land without a people, there were people in, in Palestine and Israel and in that, that the Holy Land, when Jews came to it, and there's still people there. Um, and likewise, when the Jews came back from Babylon, there were people there that they found, the Samaritans, normally called the Shomronim. I had a rabbi, Rabbi Rakov, in uh, Chicago, who theorized that these might not have been foreigners, they might have been Jews, who stayed, who didn't, you know, we know with Gedalia, after the destruction of the temple, there were still Jews that were in in Israel and Judea. Uh, And then when Gedalia was assassinated and they they, they either go to Egypt or Babel, but there might've been a substantial amount that that were still in, uh, in Israel, but they were kind of cut off from traditional Judaism 
that's in Babylon. So when they come back from Babylon, whoever these locals are that they encounter, they see them as foreigners. Um, so um, the first source, and let me uh, share my screen. And um, here we go. This hopefully, well, there we go. Oh, oh, oh no, what happened? Oh, here we go. Okay, can you, you see it from the book of Ezra? Uh, and we'll have a couple of slides from the book of Ezra. So Zerubbabel, you know, Nebuch, not such a famous guy. Uh, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, we kind of know Ezra, people are named. I don't know. I don't know anyone whose name is Zerubbabel. I would not be surprised if the direction modern orthodoxy is going in Zerubbabel, is going to be a more popular name. Um, it's kind of like, um, you know, pioneering the land. Uh, and Zerubbabel is, seems to be like the secular leader uh, who um, is returns to the land. And so if you look in the, um, in the third chapter of the book of Ezra, um, in the seventh month, they all came, gathered to, the, to, to Jerusalem. Seventh month is probably the month of Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot. And you have Joshua, the, uh, the high uh, priest um, from Yotzadak, uh, and the priest. And then you have Zerubbabel, who is the, uh, the leader, the, uh, the, the secular leader, it seems. Probably Zerubbabel's moment of glory is... Um, uh, Kate's Babel, Zerubbabel. If you remember it uh, two months ago when we uh, sang for Hanukkah, Kate's Babel, Zerubbabel, the Kate Shivim no Shati. Unfortunately, it's not in the first verse of Maos Sur, which people know. It's um, it's in uh, the second one or the third one. So third. So no, no one says that either. So Nebuch, Zerubbabel, but he's a hero. He's the leader, and. Um, they're doing Sukkot. It's wonderful. Uh, and then in Ezra chapter four. So here's one that needs interpretation. Uh, the Tsarei Yehuda, the adversaries of Judah. Now, Tsarim implies that they are harming Judah and Benjamin. They're causing Tsarot. But it could just mean that they happen to be enemies. It's not clear that they were causing problems yet, but um, certainly Yudam Binyamin, these were the Judeans with some Benjaminites that returned from Babylon. Um, I have to do it, by the way, I have a, a, in, in Detroit, we have a large Chaldean community. These are Christian uh, Iraqis, Catholic Iraqis, and their, their homeland is Iraq. And they are very excited that the Jewish homeland is kind of like Iraq because Bavel and way before that, uh, Abraham from Ur Kastim. Uh, so, um, so we're doing a trip possibly in October to Iraq. If anyone is interested and anyone on the, uh, you know, on Facebook is interested, be in touch. We'll see what happens. But that's a potential trip. So they're coming from Babylon. Very few. Nebuch. Again, think about Israel. How many came to Israel before 48? 600,000. Now Israel probably has more Jews in it than any other country. I mean, America, it's not clear what our numbers are. 
but about seven million Jews in Israel, seven and a half million. So, um, so very few come, but Zerubbabel is one of the come. And these enemies, uh, they um the they hear that the children of the captivity are building the temple onto the Lord. Now it's also interesting that language children of captivity shows that there's really a sense of um they're the foreigners, we're the indigenous people, these folks, whoever they are, uh, and you are coming from the diaspora to build your temple. It's a lot of interesting parallels. Again, it's clear in Tanakh, these are Judeans and Benjamites who God promised the land to, right? And we're living seven years before that in, in the Holy Land, so they're part of it. But it looks like, you know, the it's interesting, B'nai HaGola, these exiles are coming back and they're building this temple to God. So then they, so this is, a, 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 a these are some painful trigger warnings, some painful verses. They, now sometimes, like in the, uh, in Breshi, it could mean strong, drew, you know, drew near in a powerful way, but it could be in a loving way, a caring way. And they say, let's build with you. Let's build this with you. We believe in the same God. Now, uh, this is very cute. Uh, this is thank you to Safaria and probably the JPS version. So the uh, way it's written, Lamed Aleph, kind of means uh, we don't bow down to God, but really below the tradition, the Cree, as it's read, is to God we bow. Um, we we we're Jewish. We bow to God, same God, from the days when uh, the Assyrian king brought us here. Now, there's a whole backstory that uh, these are Geire Arayot. These are converts of the because of lions. It's elsewhere in in uh, Malachim. After the northern kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians, this is uh, like a hundred years before the Judean kingdom was destroyed, the southern kingdom. So when the northern kingdom was destroyed, kingdom of Israel, um, they uh, Assyria took out all the Israelites, the northerners, and brought in people from all over the place um, and uh, into the holy into land of Israel. And um, they did not have a good time that the lions were eating them. So they decided, uh, what are we supposed to do? So they heard that they have to worship God. So they worship God and they were saved from the lions. So they're called Geirei Arayot. Were, were they true converts? Not. Um, these are the Kutim in the Talmud. Uh, there's, there's a toast vote about it. A lot of discussion. Are they real did they convert a second time? So they are Jewish. Anyway, a lot of, but they, their narrative that they say is that um, we, we pray to God. Now this, I, I find this a very sad pasuk uh, in um, this. Zerubbabel, verse three. 
So, um, and by, yeah, so verse three, Zerubbabel and Yeshua. Now, beforehand, it mentioned um, Yeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel in that order. I might argue, it's, I don't know, but that here it's Zerubbabel and Yeshua answer together. I, it seems that maybe Zerubbabel is leading the argument and he's pushing. And they say this, and I, I honestly, I just find this a very painful pasuk, but maybe because I'm like a leaning heart liberal or something like that, that I don't like it. I don't know. They say, Lo lachem velanu note by Lelokenu. You have, I like this translation, you have nothing to do with us to build a house onto our God. No, no, we're not going to do this together. We ourselves will build it to God, Elokei Israel, the Lord of Israel, not your God, only our God. Now, of course, God's the God of everybody, but very nationalistic. And, and then they say, well, and, and as Cyrus commanded us. Oh, so look. I understand that maybe let's let's have a more cynical read of this, and that is that um, these enemies wanted to infiltrate the Jews, and they're going to go in with the Jews, and they're going to you don't want to deal with them, you know you they're going to destroy you. They're not going. It's not going to be. First of all, it won't be a Jewish temple. It'll be kind of a um, universalistic temple to God. It's not our shul, right? So, I mean, I, I know um, they're like, actually, where I am in Detroit, we have a wonderful monothelic shul and a three-minute walk, uh, no, a five-minute walk from our shul, there's another lovely modern Orthodox shul. And then another mile away, there's another mile, you know, everyone has their own shul. We're, we don't want you. But, um, and, and in, in this case, again, maybe strategically, and that's the argument, and most of the Mafarshim, the tradition, is very much smart move, very smart move, because if we would go in with them, they either would have sabotaged our efforts, or they would take it away, it wouldn't be the house to the LK Israel, but you know, when you think about the way Shlomo built the Beit HaMikdash, he brought in the king of Tzor. You know, he brought in foreigners to help him build the temple. And also, um, the holiday that they were celebrating was Sukkot. And traditionally, in Jewish uh, Torah of Shabbat Pen, the Talmud, Sukkot is the international holiday. In fact, in uh, the... Um, I don't think I have it here. Let me see. Yeah, wait a sec. So let me, so in the book of Zechariah, uh, Zechariah 14, and we read it as a Haftorah, I think we read it as a Haftorah on, on Sukkot. God demands that everyone celebrates, that the non-Jews celebrate Sukkot. Um and if Egypt in verse, uh, well, look, verse 17, those that don't come up from Jerusalem, they're not going to get any rain, God says. Uh, in verse 16, everyone is supposed to come up. 
they should come every year, bow down before God. Now it doesn't say Hashem Elokei Yisrael, God, the God of Israel in verse 16. It says the Lord of hosts, everybody, they have to celebrate Chag Sukkot. And if Egypt doesn't do it, boy, you know, they're not going to get any rain and, you know, everything. So it's a little, and that's, by the way, Zechariah is a prophet from the second temple period. He's talking to Zerubbabel and, and elsewhere in verse four, he talks to Zerubbabel. So I don't know. I don't know if Tanakh really wants us to get the image that what they did was right. I would argue that it, it's Sukkot, guys. They want to come help you build their temple. Why can't you, um, you know, let, let them help you? Um, now, what results when they say no, then uh, Tsaras and the chapters of Tsaras, the people that I'm weak in the hand, and they harried them. And, you know, they're, I don't know, they seem like they're very Jewish. They hired lawyers against them. They hired lobbyists. They're not Jewish. They're, I don't know, American or whatever. So they have lobbyists and they have lawyers to go to Cyrus the king. It's all a political mess to get them to stop um, building the temple. So, look, eventually the temple does get built. So, okay, you know, so, you know, we, we thank God. And then it gets destroyed, of course. And then we have the land of Israel. We have the state of Israel. But I wonder if this is, um, this is an argument that goes on now. Like, how much can we uh, work work together? How much should we mix? How much should we say no? We Jews are going to do what Jews do, and you do what you do. Um, and it and maybe the message of Zechariah, that everyone should come up to Jerusalem. Okay, you can answer, well, they should come up to the Jewish temple. But it really seems that there is an element, and also, again, from Solomon's temple, from the first temple, of maybe we should do things together. So, I just really want to raise that as a question. And uh, then it kind of gets a little bit uh, worse. So uh, not worse. And again, maybe that was the right thing to do. And I think everyone, I haven't seen a commentary that says it was wrong, except for Zachariah seems to say it might be wrong. Um, but uh, then things get even more intense. So in the book of Ezra, he comes to, he's such a pious person. And in chapter nine, uh, after they come and, and he, uh, you know, in verse, look at the verse 10 above it, before chapter nine, Ezra said it's hard to seek the law of the Lord and do it and to teach in Israel. What a good to Neshama, what a pious person. But um, the people say, People are intermarrying. Uh, now they're doing one of their abominations. They're following their abominations. And uh, the holy seed, this is verse two here, the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of the lands. So there's a real mixture here. And I think it's very important, um, you know, again, for uh, contemporary Judaism. There are two elements here. One of them is about 
the um, mixing with the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, Prezi, etc. So one of them is that they're um, intermarrying and they're becoming pagans. They're losing their Judaism. It's all gone. The other argument in verse two is um, really much more of a nationalistic argument. The holy seed is now mingled. Very, I don't, you know, I don't like this kind of language, really. I mean, I love Zerah Kodesh. I love the, the language that we're holy. But this mixing, you know, mongolizing, adultering, adulterating the Zerah Kodesh, the holy seed, it kind of bothers me. Um, and meaning that that's, Maybe that's not the right approach. Maybe the it it's certainly I'm very sympathetic to the approach of when intermarriage leads to giving up Judaism and weakening Judaism and all that. It shows that it's a, a big challenge. But when we think about it sort of in the sense of, you know, you have holy seed and you shouldn't mix with unholy seed. I think that's a very different way of, of viewing it. And I'm glad that the book of Ezra separates the two. And yeah, I'm sure traditionally it's been read that both are bad. But I'm really glad that the book of Ezra separates the two because I think in contemporary uh, understanding, we think about America and, and, and intermarriage, we really have to make that separation. And um the newer statistics of children of intermarried couples show that more of them are raising their kids with Judaism than before. It might be a generational thing, but it also might be that initially, maybe 30, 40 years ago, whatever, intermarriage was, was uh, such a taboo that people were people that did intermarry, even 20 years ago, felt rejected by the community. Over the last few decades, again, for better or for worse, I don't know, but they're not, I think for better. People who intermarry are not feeling as rejected by the community and they're feeling they can be part of the Jewish community and therefore they're raising their kids more Jewish. Um, so look, this is a huge, huge issue. Um, it's also a huge issue, um, how we deal with people that are syncretic, that are raising the kids both Jewish and non-Jewish. Um, we, we had someone in Chicago, wonderful woman, pretty religious, and she had a boyfriend who was Catholic and pretty religious, and they did get married. The wedding was um, kosher uh, with a justice of the peace because it was an intermarriage, but it wasn't just an it was He's not, I don't know how the kid is being raised, but... Um, and you know what's so interesting is that their friends came. Um, and I think that, you know, the the from Pasuk Aleph, it's so important to whatever we can do to make sure that when people are intermarrying, they're bringing up their kids as Jewish, and they feel that the Jewish community loves them and wants them to raise their kids Jewish. So anyway, that's we don't have to get so much into that. But it's a real, it's a real, real challenge. Uh, but definitely Ezra 
he tears, he's very much anti-intermarriage and, uh, but he has an approach that he tries to inspire the people not to intermarry or to, to get rid of their non-Jewish spouse and wives. He tears, it's all him. He plucks his hair off my head and my beard. I sat down and everyone, because, and from the evening, I arose from the fasting and I fell on my knees and I prayed and I this and I that. And then uh, look what happens in chapter 10. When he shows people, however he does, that this is a terrible thing, then people come back and everyone cries and everyone, and, and the men and women are crying and uh, they say, we're going to, you know, we're going to reject them. And uh, um, we have broken faith regarding them, have married from women. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant. They'll pull away all the wives. It's a little bit, these verses are a little bit vague because the um, wives, it seems, are there. You know, in verse one, it says men, women, and children. So uh, in, you know, in verse uh, three, you know, they're getting rid of these women and those who are born. Maybe uh, if you look up in the end of verse two, and it's a little bit of drush, a little bit of homiletics, you know, yesh mikveh li Yisrael alzot. So the literal meaning is now there is hope for Israel concerning this thing. But in a, again, I'm a rabbi, a little bit drashic. You could say yesh mikveh. If they go to the mikveh and they convert, then we have a solution. There is a mikveh for Israel. There is hope. There is a ritual bath that can enable them to convert. And maybe, I don't know, I don't want to give a gloss over it, but maybe that's what happened. That was a, that was their rejecting the women. That's what happened. But when we turn now to, um, I want to get this, sorry, I'm going to, Okay, I think I have to, um, second, sorry, let me see what we can do. We're going to get this, but one second, sorry. <laughs> ah, okay, Nehemiah, okay, here we go. Now, we love Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra is like, you know, a giant. We'll come back to Ezra a little bit uh, before we're done. But Nehemiah... Oh my gosh, he's such a wonderful person. And you know, honestly, I, yeah. Really quickly, can you can you show your, your your accurate sources? I think we're still on the same one. Oh, does this not say Nehemiah? No. Oh, okay. One second. Okay, so thanks for that comment. One second. Let me um, please move the window away from the share. Let me stop sharing, and now let me share again. Here we go. Okay, is that better? Can you see Nehemiah? Yes. Great, great, thank you. And by the way, I've been talking so much and a lot of controversial things. So, uh, Eddie, you, I'll look to you to go, ah, you know, if anyone, you know, wants to jump in here. So, uh, um, Nehemiah, having said that, let me continue. Um, so, uh, um, Nehemiah, 
such a special person. His story is um, he hears that they're not doing well in Israel. And by the way, this is something that um, in America, I know where there's a lot of trauma with the judicial review of Israel and the, the right-wing parties and, and very painful. Um, but the, there is a sign like, like, like just to know where these, where people are coming from, where the, you know, the Ben Gvir people and the Smotrich people supporting them are coming from. Uh, some of them are coming from like, they're so desperate to help the Jews. Uh, now, look, that does, that's not an excuse for things, you know, and, but anyway, he hears that things are terrible. Uh, they said unto me, the remnant that are left in captivity are in great affliction. Or It's terrible. But the problem is, so I'm very upset, he says, and the problem is, um, I just want to read these so we're a little bit sympathetic to Nehemiah. Um, and he prays, he prays, he prays, prays, prays to God. Uh, and then um, he has a conflict. He's uh, he has a very prestigious position in the palace. He serves the wine. He's like the butler in the Joseph story. The butler, you know, lives. Uh, so uh, the uh, and the, the the king sees that he's not looking good. He's upset about Israel and the community. And then um, he uh, and he opens up to the the king, and he you know, and and this is. A big sacrifice for him to open up to the king, first of all, and to really take the king sends him to Israel. So, um, but he is a radical, he's a zealot. Um, and first, there's all this stuff about Shabbos and how we can make them keep Shabbos. And look at now, towards the end, he sees that the women had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Interesting, not Canaanites but foreigners. And uh, so interesting, the, the verse 24, it's like cultural, like they, the kids are not speaking Yiddish, you know, whatever. The children are not speaking Hebrew. They're, they're speaking Ashdod. Maybe these are Philistines. They're speaking Phoenician. Uh, and they don't know how to speak Hebrew. And like that's the cry. I mean, you know, Dan is with Prisma. That's like the cry. That's why people aren't learning Hebrew. And uh, and this is living in Israel. They're not speaking Hebrew. So uh, what a shanda. So he, you can, it, there's a, like a sympathetic picture that's painted that here he made Aliyah to Israel to help them out in Israel. And besides them not keeping Shabbos Kodesh, keeping the Sabbath, they're intermarrying. I mean, it's a little bit um, like, again, I don't think it's happening as much, but in the 70s and 80s, when they, people used to celebrate Sylvester, which is like January 1st. It's like a, we don't even have it in America. It's like a European Christian celebration of St. Sylvester on January 1st. And all the hotels were like, if you do a Sylvester party on January 1st, we're going to close you down. We're going to take away your kashrut. It was such a big deal. I think now with more of the Russians coming, it's not as much of a big deal. But you understand that um, it's traumatic for him. This is the holy land, and they're not speaking Hebrew. But I, I, so we've seen different ways. So Ezra's way of dealing with it is, inspiring the people 
whatever he did, he fasted, he tore out his beard, he prayed, he he sat on the floor and everyone joined him. That was one way, I think, and that's one way for us, again, if we feel, when we feel that we have to carve out Jewish space to do it by inspiring, by showing how meaningful Jews marrying Jews is, or Jews being, you know, connected to the Torah, whatever it is. In Nehemiah, who's also heralded as a great man, he has a different approach. <laughs> he cursed them. He smote certain of them. Now, uh, Ezra pulled out his own hair, but uh, Nehemiah pulled out their hair and uh, made them swear. So uh, it's a different approach. And, and I think that, again, by Tanakh presenting both approaches, um, I think it shows that um, maybe one is preferable. You know, maybe now, again, if I were a zealot in, in Israel, maybe I'd say, look, we got to be like Nehemiah, you know, and, and you know, uh, Mayor Kahana used to talk about intermarriage and the problems and all that in Israel or wherever and making it a law against it. Um, Ezra does not have that approach. Ezra is all about, I'll do what I need to do to create the Jewish atmosphere that I think is important for the Holy Land, for my community. Nehemiah takes this other approach and smites them and plucking out their hair and all that. And, okay, Asher Lopatin disagrees with Nehemiah's approach, but uh, so be it. But this idea of where, um, and, and by the way, Ezra's approach also might have been, let's reach out to them and Yeshmik Valley Israel. Right? Let's get them to convert. You have these beautiful kids. Let's get them to be involved in Judaism. How many stories do we know of someone that either their parents were Jewish and had no interest in Judaism, they become interested, or you know, their parents weren't Jewish, or one of them was Jewish. And you know, so that's the Ezra approach. Here it's none of that. Um, and you know, knocking it all down. So we jump a little bit here. They're just starting the second commonwealth, like in the um, seventh century, eighth century before the common era, seventh century before the common era, just starting to build the temple. And, and eventually, you know, they get things started and you get the period of the Anche Knesset Agdola, the men of the great assembly. You get the Mishnah. And then we get, uh, no, I don't want that. Okay, let me go, let me stop sharing for a second. And um, let me, yeah, sorry. Nope, sorry, one second, almost there. Yes. Okay, and let me now, how do I share my screen? Oh yeah, Zoom, share screen, and here we go. Okay, okay, uh, Eddie, can we see Cursing the Christians? Okay, look, 
Um, so this is by Ruth Langer. She has a whole book on this. You can, uh, if you're more interested, uh, Cursing the Christians, the History of Birkat Hamimim, right? We have the famous blessing in uh, in our Shmonesre for the tattles of the Lamashinim Alti Tikva in our prayer, Chol all the evil should just be destroyed, uh, Zadim, all the bad people. Um, and um, Ruth is going to talk about much more in her book, but basically um, they, um, uh, the Birkat Kohanim has been enigma for centuries. And Christians, you know, the earliest Christian fathers, um, they think the Jews are cursing the Christians. Um, because we say minim. Well, actually, actually, we don't have our version. I'm an Ashkenazi Jew. We don't have the whole haminim, right? We have like zedim. We don't have minim because it was censored. Because minim uh, is an uh, an old term for Christians, early Christians. So um, the Kyrgyzza. So it seems that the theory that many people had is that um, when Christianity was just starting in the first, second century of the Common Era, um, they were Jewish Christians, basically. Um, they were um, they were part of the Jewish community, right? And you have in the, in the New Testament the whole discussion. It was really Paul who changed it, took away the law. But before that, um, the church James, the brother of, of Jesus, was in Jerusalem, and uh, you know they were doing they were kosher and they're celebrating Pesach and Matzah or, or that, and they uh, but. They apparently didn't believe that the temple should be rebuilt. This is after the destruction of the temple. So late first century, early second century, let's say. Um, and they were, um, they believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Let's say it's second century. So there was a problem. Like, how do we deal with, first of all, practically, and if we remember Zerubbabel was dealing when they, the locals wanted to build a temple with them. Practically, are they going to be, you know, spying on us? Are they going to be a fifth column? Are they going to sabotage our efforts? That's what people felt about the early Christians. But also, and, and you know, they would tattle to the Romans, perhaps, you know, when someone said, let's build a temple, the temple should be rebuilt. Boom, right to the Roman authorities. And that person was arrested. That's the story that's told. But also, um, you know, you can understand that they were people were really angry. They were worried that these Christian Jews or would would corrupt the regular Jews. How do we get rid of these Christian Jews, these heretics? Uh, you know, there was a uh, effort uh, with totally different. Please excuse me, everyone on Facebook. But there was a there were some that felt that Chabad had such outlandish views of the Rebbe, and and the Rebbe would come back as Messiah, 
and the Rebbe, people accused certain Chabadniks of almost, you know, saying, uh, uh, praying to the Rebbe and all this stuff. And there are books about this. And very interesting, I find, that with all that, Chabad, we know, they do Shabbos, they do Hanukkah, they like the menorah, they do Shabbos, the Shabbos candles, they do everything very Jewish. And in the end of the day, and this was, well, the Rebbe has been gone for a long time, decades and decades, they're still part of the Jewish people, it's great. In fact, you know, on college campuses, you either go to the Hillel, or you go to the Haredi group, Ma'or, or whatever it is in your campus, or you go to Chabad. Those are the three choices usually. So um, it, it this, I don't know, maybe this was a mistake. If if they really tried to try to kick out the early Christians, Christian Jews, because of their philosophy, maybe in the end of the day, it was a mistake. Just like, because maybe they, maybe, and maybe not, it would have turned out like Chabad is today. Like, oh, hey, you don't believe in their philosophy or you think this Chabad, oh, they're messianists or Mashiachists or whatever. Doesn't really, you know, we're all together. Uh, you know, people can push back again. They can still think Chabad is this danger. But after decades and decades and decades of this, I think we see that, you know, we're okay. So it's a real question. Now, Ruth Langer we don't have to read the whole thing, but she argues, I think I boldened this, hopefully, somewhere after this long article. Um, no, I didn't. But anyway, she kind of argues that that might not be true. And you can read the whole book, you know, that um, later on, this bracha was seen to be, uh, like she says here on the top, we simply do not know who the original meaning were. It can mean kinds of source. In the high Middle Ages, it definitely referred to Gentile Christians. But this bracha was written by Rabban Gamliel, uh, who is um, um, first century towards the early second century, right? Let's see where she says, you know, uh, times him. You know, that's really early. Uh, you know, Rabban Gamliel, circa 100 CE, plus or minus, I was right. So either end of the first century, beginning of the second century of the common era, she thinks there weren't enough Christians around and, and uh, it's really Lewis Martin, a generation of Jesuit scholar, that this was the scenario behind this is the descriptions. The Christian says they were evicted from synagogue according to the gospel of John. And this is maybe what the gospel of John was referring to, but she's not so convinced about that. And that makes me feel a little bit better because, uh, um, again, you know, I think we have the, a model of Chabad is very different, not comparing the two in, in severity or whatever, but there's an example of one you could make this argument that it's such an asthma and it's, it's dangerous and there, and everyone, if you go anywhere and you want kosher food outside of the main cities, you go to Chabad and everyone does, everyone, pretty much everyone does that. And because if you're keeping the mitzvot, you're part of it. So this is a case of where I think it was, if if it was designed to reject the early Christians, maybe that was a mistake. Who knows? I don't know. Um, an interesting side note, and then I have one more source, which is really crazy. So we'll have like four minutes for it. Um, I was talking to a friend today that, that we're hosting our, our federation. Many federations bring uh, their state legislators 
to Israel, you know, and, and, you know, of course, APAC brings, you know, federal Congress people to Israel. Um, and he said they were having a meeting of them, of all the in, in, in Michigan. Uh, and there, a lot of their, the rabbis that they know are messianic rabbis. There are a lot of messianic Jews for Jesus rabbis. This goes back again, the 70s and 80s, you know, oh, they're just for Jesus. They're going to convert our kids on college camp. I remember Shmuley Boteach, Rabbi Boteach, that was, he earned his early cred by arguing with Jews for Jesus people um, and in Speaker's Corner. But in any case, um, and, and I remember seeing on TV, sometimes they'll have a rabbi on a talk show and he's a Jews for Jesus rabbi, like a Messianic Jew is like terrible. But, you know, a lot of good Christians who love Israel are looking at these Messianic Jewish rabbis as those are the Jews they know. Really difficult, it's problematic. Um, and it's always like, oi gewalt, you know, how low have we fallen? that we've normalized them. But on the other hand, what are you gonna do? You're gonna say you're to a, you know, an innocent legislator who wants to go on a trip to Israel, your rabbi is a fraud and should be kicked out and is trying to destroy. Whatever you say, like, okay, whatever. So that's just sort of a sidebar. I don't know what to do. It's a real challenge. Um, we have some Chovavei, where Shmuley is uh, from Chovavei, and and uh, so I remember I had a uh, a uh, one of when I was a rabbi in Chicago, one of my interns was a Chovavei guy, an amazing rabbi currently, and he had a Friday night oneg about whether we should accept Jews for Jesus as part of the Jewish community, which we don't now. They're not part of any. You don't when you have gatherings, you know, board of rabbis, they're not part of it. But he was saying like, why not? And Another a rabbi, my shul, from that time on, he thought that Chove Yeshiva Chove Torah was a bastion of uh, Christianizing Jews. And that was all it was about, is trying to bring Jesus into So anyway, it's a really kind of a taboo subject, by the way, which it's not, Yeshiva. But um, it's um, this goes back to this idea, was the battle, if there was a battle against the Christians, was that a legitimate battle? And I'll end off with, uh, okay, I hope, um, uh, Eddie, can we see Simon the Righteous? No. No. Okay, so I'm going to stop Rabbi, sharing. we also, like, if, yeah. um, if, if you don't mind, we want to leave a couple minutes for questions. Oh, great, great. Okay, can we go over for a minute or... Okay. You want to see the source or not? Well, let's do questions. It's fine. The theory behind this is that um, the theory behind this is, and this is a some crazy Facebook post, but it has some good sources, is that we fast on, there is a source that seems to imply that you fast on Asarab on the 10th of Tevet for someone who was Simon who was Peter, St. Peter, Simon of Calphas. Why would we fast, Jews fast for Simon the Righteous? Because there are these theories that he was a pious man. And the reason he was a disciple of Jesus or something and did all his stuff was in order to, he meant Lishma for God's sake, for Judaism's sake, to bring the early Christians out of the Jewish 
community. So he wanted to create a Christian religion so that these early Christians would not corrupt Yiddishkeit and the shul, similar to Vilam al-Shanim, but in a different way. And therefore, he is a righteous Jew. We, we, you know, Nebuch, he had to do this to save the Jews. Again, there's that sort of a theory um, that would say, and it's, it's not totally crackpot. There are other sources that talk about that, even that Paul was also a pious Jew who just saw the danger of these early Christians embedded in the Jewish community and found a way of pulling them away and creating a whole new religion. And therefore, Judaism is safe today. Um, my argument kind of is, you know, I'm not, that, that we have to be careful sometimes when people want to join with us and join with them, it's a good thing we shouldn't be so afraid. But there are a lot of these traditions that are very much afraid. Eddie, I'm good. Can we go for 10 minutes for questions? Are we okay with that? Or Okay, let me stop sharing and stop talking. So, so Eddie, does anyone have any questions or of Shmuley or? Folks, feel free to unmute yourself. I, or type I must have said something controversial today, um, but uh, but no, you're a good, good crowd. Lonnie, good to see you from Detroit, I think. Good to see you. Um, look, so I, I think I pose a lot of questions. And, and you know, it's public policy. It's You can't Pascha necessarily on public policy on, on, you know, that's like in the Haredi world, they talk about dot Torah. That's sort of, you know, the rabbis know what direction we should go in. But I'm, I, it's not really clear always uh, in this sense. And, and, and I would just say that I struggle with it. When I'm in a church, I do want to make sure that I, I want to make sure I'm a good Jew and that I'm, I'm really, you know, loyal. And, and is this okay that I'm here? It's okay that I'm singing along a song. It might not mention Jesus, but it's like, God is everything. There's a great uh, gospel song or a Baptist song. God is my everything. That's a great song, but it's, it's Christian song. So, um, so yes. I'd, I'd How do you pronounce your name? You're pretty close. It's Aglaia, but you can Aglaia. say Aglaia. I take Aglaia also because it's actually a technical pronunciation. But anyway, um, it's just some, I was thinking just in terms of larger historical trends with exclusivity and self-preservation, because a lot of the time, though, it's about self-preservation. But my question is, I'm wondering, though, um, when does it become, I mean, just from what I know of a lot of different trends throughout history, when does it also become like, okay, you've got, I want self-preservation. I want, you know, so we need exclusivity, but then it, it starts to hit reality. Like, mm -hmm. are you going to be able to keep your culture going if you are so exclusive? I don't know if we touched wow. on that it or yeah. No, I, it's a great question. And I kind of, it's, I, I think that Rav Soloveitchik, Yosef Dov Soloveitchik, um, who um, you know was born in what 1903, uh, and came to America in the 30s and established Maimonides School. I think, and he really established modern orthodoxy. Modern orthodoxy, I really believe, is Rav Soloveitchik, uh, and he, um, I think, he felt that orthodoxy would not survive in America unless it kind of opened up. 
you know, and he did his PhD did in Europe, but uh, unless it was really opened up, because I, I'm, a, I'm a believer that he was really Haredi, uh, and, but in order for orthodoxy to survive in the, you know, four in the thirties and forties and fifties, you had to kind of open up. So Maimonides school, his school is still co-ed and girls learn Talmud with boys. Um, but it's a pretty from school. It's not like girls are reading Torah there, you know, anything. It, it's a mixture of really holding on to the tradition and, uh, and yet figuring out he really felt it would not, I think that it really would not survive unless you went to Harvard, you could show that you could be a from Jew and go to Harvard University. Uh, and so, but, um, and by the way, he was really a hawk. He's as far as going to church or anything like he, uh, from what I heard, he said it was prohibited to watch Kennedy's funeral because it was a Christian thing, even on TV. It was a real hawk in certain ways. Um, but interest, I mean, I find it very fascinating that the Haredi world is thriving. Now, the ultra-Orthodox world, I believe, is influenced from the outside. And they're, you know, they're into sports. They like sports and a little bit. And, you know, they're, but the this idea that you really have to integrate significantly in order to survive, I don't know. I mean, we're just seeing that the Haredi mark thank, and God bless them, they're very successful. Uh, and they're, maybe becoming even more and more extreme. Uh, and so it's a real interesting change. I'm modern Orthodox, like Nebuch, I believe that we got to integrate and it's important and I believe it, but I'm not sure how, um, whether it really is um, succeeding, uh, you know, in a utilitarian way, really. Like that's the way, maybe it was, the Soloveitchik might've been right that in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you needed this kind of modern orthodoxy to preserve orthodoxy, but it might be that in 2023, just from a, you know, which kind of Judaism is going to survive, let's say in America, it might be ultra orthodoxy. And I'm going to stay modern orthodox. That's who I am. Uh, but it's just really a fascinating times to see the, um, you know, incredible uh, success of, of Haredi Judaism, you know, which which really is it found a different way of, of staying cloistered, but in very limited ways being part of society. The Satmer, you know, they know they play, uh, you know, who to vote for, and they swing all their votes for Hillary Clinton and probably, you know, Nebuch, they vote Democrats, crazy. But, uh, you know, uh, but... They're, you can't argue that they're, you know, really mixing with society and, and opening up. So very great question, uh, Aglia. I think we have time for one more uh, question or pushback. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'll just say one other thing. I mean, but why not? Uh, you know, I'm kind of a libertarian. I'm kind of like what I'm sort of like Ezra, like. If as if we're for if I'm for or if I believe that I would love for people to all keep Shabbat, okay. If that succeeds, then that'll succeed. If it doesn't succeed, it doesn't. So like like some people argue like, well, we can't let women do certain things in synagogue because 
you know, then uh, it's going to be all women and men are going to be chased out. Well, sorry, if, if that's the way it is, that's the way it is. It's not a reason not to let women do it. So men have to sort of step up and, you know, and become useful. And, you know, that's our problem. It's I'm, a, I'm up for a very sorry, ugly, you can laugh. Um, I'm like for a free market, like it's a free market. And that's what in Ezra's Israel, it was very much a free market. Nehemiah was, uh, no, if we don't like what you're doing. We're going to beat you and smite you and, and all that. Um, but again, in the case of Zerubbabel, whether to work with the Samaritans or not, I mean, that's that was the Jews' choice. That was, Jews have a right to build a temple on their own, but there are consequences. And maybe the consequences are more negative. I don't know. I guess, I, you know, it's all retrospect. Thank you so much, Rabbi Asher. I, I know you, you started off by saying it brings you so much joy to share such great Torah and it I, it lightens up the world. Your, well, your, your Torah was phenomenal today. Thank you so much for bringing this blessing to us today. Uh, I want to say another huge thank you again to Rabbi Asher for providing such a great thank class. You. Thank you all of you who are on this call, who are going to be uh, either watching the recording or joined us on live. We appreciate you. Just a quick uh, reminder that next week we have another uh, two uh, great classes. One class with Rabbi Jeremiah, the principle of morality over ritual and prophets. Mm -hmm. Following up that with Rabbi Jason Herman, uh, values and the reality of po politics and social justice. Friends, it's been a blessing to learn some phenomenal Torah with an even <laughs> greater speaker with Rabbi Asher. We appreciate each and every one of you. Have an amazing day. Take care. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much, Eddie and Rich Willie and everyone.